embarrassing story that happened to me in this last trip to China. We were at the Pearl Market, and the Pearl Market's a place where everybody expects you to negotiate and bargain with each other. And then it's a case of one-upmanship. You know, somebody says, man, I got a great deal. I bargained them down from 1,000 yuan down to 500. And the next person says, 500? I paid 200 for that. And uh, anyway, there's lots of bargaining going on. And uh, uh, I did, I think, fairly well. But uh, toward the end of our shopping at the Pearl Market, uh, I needed to quickly buy a suitcase, a carry-on suitcase that I could... Uh, take some of the souvenirs we had purchased for some of our supporters back to America. I couldn't find any really cheapy one, but there was a nice Samsonite carry-on that this guy wanted to sell me, and I had bargained him down to 110 yuan, which is about $13.75 U.S. And so I paid it, and I wandered over the escalator, went down the escalator, and started going away. And this guy comes running after me with money in his hand, and I didn't quite understand what he was talking about. He's waving 100 uh, Yuan note at me, and I thought, well, maybe I dropped this. And like an idiot, I took it out of his hand while he's talking because he's trying to give it to me. And then he says, "You, you, you cheated me. You know, this is a, this is a counterfeit bill." And I'm thinking, oh, this is a scam. And of course, he's not going to take the note back. And everybody's gathering around, seeing me trying to pawn this note off on this guy. And uh, I knew I had bank bills that were, you know, good bills. But because he was making such a big fuss, I gave him a brand new 100 uh, yuan. So I paid 210 yuan. It was still a good deal, but not nearly as good a deal as I'd hoped. And uh, that was my education, my introduction to the fact that there are counterfeits all over China. In fact, when you check into a hotel and you give them a big wad of money, cash, they put it through their uh, machines that will check if it's a counterfeit or not. Just go through three times. And I did not realize how much of a problem counterfeiting is here in America, but last March, Congress uh, produced a report that said it is a huge problem. In fact, North Korea is publishing, according to them, um, uh, anywhere from 15 to $100 million a year in high quality counterfeits. And they've been doing that over the last 10 years. It's a real headache for the administration. Um, apparently, China has been complicit with it. In May of this year, CNN said the fake $100 bills are of such high quality is almost impossible to distinguish them from the real thing. It takes a lot of close examination by experts to determine that these were uh, fakes. These are called the supernotes. And uh, it's uh, making the administration or the um, uh, our revenue department realize they're going to have to print in next year new notes. Uh, of course, they still have to honor the old, so I'm not sure how that's going to help because they can continue to counterfeit the old, the old bills. But there have always been counterfeits. And in this chapter, we have a different kind of a counterfeit. It's counterfeit religion. Now, at the beginning, the counterfeiting didn't have to be that great. Uh, when Philip comes onto the scene, then Satan has to up the ante and he has to make the counterfeit into a supernote, as it were, uh, something that is going to even fool uh, Philip. But prior to verse 13, uh, there really is not that need. Uh, it, it's such a crass counterfeiting of religion that from hindsight, from our perspective, um, it, it really does not look any better than the note that he pawned off on me. That was something after a while I got used to recognizing. This is clearly a counterfeit. 
Uh, and the reason it didn't need to be that good is that for the past 750 years, the Samaritans had mixed the religion of the Bible. They were half Jews and they were half Gentiles. They had mixed the religion of the Bible together with pagan religion and other superstitions, and they were not very discerning. Satan was able to be much more bold prior to verse 13. Let's begin at verse 9. But, he's deliberately contrasting the ministry of Philip with uh, what Simon was doing, but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Now, if anybody said he was the great power of God today, um, which is equivalent to saying you're God or at least some Gnostic emanation from God, they'd think you're a nutcase. But back in those days, the superstitions were strong enough. All this guy had to do was perform a few really good miracles. And these guys thought he was the real stuff. Now, commentators point out that Simon didn't dare oppose the monotheism that was in Samaria because they were very, very strict on that. But his self-centered brashness did not seem to faze them very much. And so let's take a look, first of all, at the power of Satan as it was manifested in Simon. First of all, Simon didn't just fake sorcery. Uh, verses 9 and 11 say that he, quote, practiced sorcery. And the Bible indicates that sorcery is the real thing. Uh, it's demonic powers that are working through the sorcerer. It's not simply a sleight of hand magic show like um, magicians nowadays do. These sor sorcerers were actually able to perform uh, miracles by the power of Satan. In fact, if you wanted them to curse some other person, you could pay them to pronounce a curse. Um, of course, they had to do it in the name of God uh, for it to fly with the Samaritans, just like out in Ethiopia. Occasionally, you could, you could um, some of the priests, you could pay them to pronounce a curse upon some other person and pin it onto the church door. But if you look at verse 10, it says, Everyone in Samaria gave heed to Simon, and it may explain why there was so much demonism in verse 7. Verse 7 says, For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Uh, people were under the power of this sorcerer. The early church father, Justin Martyr, said that Simon actually lived six miles west of him and that he knew all about this Simon. He said that this man did all kinds of magic arts through the power of demons. And um, uh, the early church fathers spoke a great deal about Simon. Uh, they were quite familiar with the cult that he had started. They point out that after this encounter with Peter, he continued to practice sorcery and that uh, Simon uh, had a great cult following that came after him. Some of the sorceries that uh, they mentioned that he was able to do that absolutely amazed the Samaritans were things like stopping birds in midair or animating clay figurines of uh, birds and animals into animals just like in the Old Testament. Uh, the magicians back then turned their rods into snakes. Or uh, one of the miracles was a picture of Simon uh, that was given to a Jew. When he cut it, it started to bleed. So Roman Catholics aren't the first ones, you know, to claim that they have bleeding pictures. Um, they don't have a monopoly on that. Now, some of that may have been trickery. You know, we don't know for sure, but some of the miracles that are mentioned by the church fathers 
very clearly seem to be demonic in nature. And one of the things I want to start off by saying is don't ever think of sorcery as being just a myth that can be safely dismissed. Luke took sorcery very seriously, and unfortunately, many Christians do not. There are Christians, I know, who have gone to seances um, to, uh, you know, see what in the world they're doing there, have had their palms read, have uh, gone to these uh, fortune tellers and had them looking into the crystal. And when they've been rebuked, they said, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a game. It's just some fun. There's nothing dangerous about it. We're Christians, after all. There's nothing that Satan can do to us. In a church that I grew up in, or spent some time in, actually on furloughs when when I was a child, there were some of the youth group there who were actually levitating things and levitating people off the ground and saying, oh, this is just all scientific, there's nothing uh, weird about it, it's all science, until the elders put a stop to it. We must not underestimate the power of Satan. Exodus 22, verse 18 says, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. It was such a serious problem that God put the death penalty on that. And I think that we err greatly if we minimize or trivialize what God has made to be a very, very serious thing. Don't demythologize Satan. He and his demons are real. Leviticus 19.31 says, Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And so he's saying even believers can be defiled by these spirits and by these mediums. Uh, Leviticus 20, verse 6 says, And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from my people. And so in God's eyes, sorcery is a real thing. There is a power of Satan that these kinds of people wield. And out in Ethiopia, the witch doctors were able to do some absolutely amazing things that just astounded the people. Uh, Coptic priests were able to do uh, amazing miracles, as have some Roman Catholic priests, and it's by the power of Satan that they have done so. The second thing that we see is that these people were under Simon's influence. Now, we've already hinted at that, but there is a a further hint of that in verse 9 when Simon says that uh, the people were astonished. They were astonished. He astonished the people. It uses a term that means literally to be out of your mind. Sometimes it's translated as to be bewitched. In fact, the King James, if any of you have King James, you'll notice that it has bewitched. Uh, Rue has under the spell of his magic. Wycliffe has. He matted them with his witchcrafts. And so let me give you a dictionary that uh, tries to explain in the ancient world how this term was very commonly used. This dictionary says, exceptional states of soul, whether due to supernatural power or neurotic disturbance, are widespread in antiquity. In detail, experiences vary, and there is a fluid line between ecstasy and illusion and ecstasy and possession. In the narrower sense, ecstasy denotes beneficial infilling of a substance or person, either by entry or by breathing. And so, uh, they point out it could be reference to the Holy Spirit coming into a person or another spirit coming into a person. He goes on, early attempts are made to induce it by narcotics, music, dancing, rhythmic cries, and self-mutilation. In mysticism, the goal is an absorption associated with visions and auditions. 
Dionysius is a union of both the hidden God and the manifested God who shares with his worshippers in a combination of creative desire and destructive frenzy. Wine and dancing and Bacchic cries express this, but also become a means to induce it. The dancing women show vividly how the world is bewitched for ecstatics. Since ecstasy brings vision, a prophetic element is involved which is most clearly reflected in the Delphic cult. And he goes on to talk about how uh, this can convey that idea of a power that influences people. Now, it could simply mean they were amazed. But uh, there are many people who take it in a stronger sense. Thirdly, verse 9 says that Simon was claiming that he was someone great. In fact, um, power and greatness were something that these people are very much preoccupied with. It's a desire to have power that's gotten many people involved in the paranormal and in the supernatural. Verse 10 says that the people agreed with this claim to greatness. They thought he was the great power of God. And I want you to notice how they reinterpret the demonic under the rubric of, of their religion. And... Um, uh, to me, it's just a fascinating thing. They believed they were worshiping the God of the first five books of the Bible, but they were doing it in the power of Satan. They had added all kinds of other things to that. And we can find the same thing today. There are some things that are claiming to be authentic Christianity that are simply fakery and illusion. There are other things I think are clearly demonic. Uh, there are miracles that are clearly demonic. There are prophecies that are clearly demonic, tongues that are clearly demonic. You see, everything that God produces, Satan tries to make a counterfeit of. D. James Kennedy tells about a memory in a speed reading um, a guy who's just had phenomenal reputation, especially in Fortune 500 com com uh, companies. He would travel all around and he'd teach, for example, teach people how to read a book without ever opening its cover or how to have phenomenal memory. He was also able to walk on the coals, uh, hot coals. But D. James Kennedy says, it's interesting, here's a, a person who professes to be a believer, and yet he is practicing by the demonic. And when he actually became converted, he instantaneously and completely lost those powers. He wasn't able to do his seminars anymore because it was demonic power that was enabling these people uh, to uh, have this um, stuff he was teaching. Mark Bubeck in Iowa has had numerous cases of people who have lost their power for tongues when demons were cast out. My father has testified to the same thing. Satan imitates, he counterfeits everything that God does. And so just because there's a person who claims to be a Christian, he's got all kinds of religious talk, does not mean that his miracles are automatically miracles that are of God. We need to look at the characteristics of the person's ministry. We need to ask, is this person's ministry more like Simon or is it more like the ministry that Philip engaged in? Verse 10 indicates that the whole city was under Simon's bondage and deception to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest saying, this man is the great power of God. And notice in verse 11 why they believed. It wasn't because he used the Scripture even though the church father said he used the Scripture a great deal. But it wasn't because he used the Scripture it says, and they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries a long time. They were impressed with all of the wrong things. If you look at verse 23, you'll see that Simon himself was in bondage. Now, he thought he was in total control of the situation, but he was in bondage to Satan. Peter says, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. 
And so the demonic is a scary thing. It can poison the hearts of men, women, and children. It can hold people in complete bondage and slavery to him. Never underestimate the power of Satan. But praise the Lord. God's power is far greater than the power of Satan. And this contrast is not simply a contrast in power, but what the power points to. Philip too had power, but instead of preaching about himself like Simon pompously was doing, he constantly was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Simon is so busy preaching about himself and how great he is and all of the wonderful things that he is doing, he didn't have time to point to God. But Philip is always pointing away from himself to the Lord Jesus Christ and pointing to the Word of God. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. They did not preach themselves. They preached the Word. And in the book of Jude, which is a great manual on how to detect cults, how to detect false teaching from true teaching, this is one of the tests that Jude sets up. What kind of a characteristic do the people who are preaching have? He says this, These are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. Is the leader in in, in the so-called ministry only for his own benefit, for the money that he can get out of this? Jude goes on, They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. And so you have to ask, is this person self-serving? Is he self-centered? Is he pompous? Or does he point people to the Lord Jesus Christ? Philip too does amazing deeds, but he does them in the name of Jesus, not in his own name. Verse 12 mentions that the message of of the kingdom and the name of Jesus are central to his ministry. Third, Philip is humble with his use of power. Fourth, God's power was at work in Philip to such a great degree that Simon is absolutely astonished by what Philip is doing, which implies to me Philip has access to far greater power than Simon does. Verse 13 then Simon himself also believed, and he was baptized. When he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. And each of these points indicates that while we should never mess around with the satanic, we don't need to be afraid of it. We need to have a healthy respect for Satan, yes, but we do not need to be afraid of him. The Holy Spirit in this chapter is far more powerful. And from verse 7 where he's casting out demons and they're leaving with shrieks, down to verse 13 where uh, Simon recognizes that Philip has something that he does not have. It's very clear that the power of the Holy Spirit is far superior to the power of Satan. He is greater than witchcraft. He is greater than sorcery. He is greater than anything that Satan might throw at you. We need not be intimidated. Uh, Maybe you have loved ones who are maybe not in bondage to overt occultism or sorcery or anything like that. Maybe they're in bondage to pornography or to homosexuality or something else like that. And yet God's power is greater than anything that Satan may put people into bondage uh, through. You do not need to be afraid of them. Athanasius talks so much about the demons that are cast out and the later church fathers talk about how easy it is to overcome Satan with a word from His Word. Through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, they tremble and they flee. I found it interesting that when I was reading in the church fathers about Simon the sorcerer this past week, and I've got a program on my computer, I can search through these things real quickly. So it's a wonderful program. But um, 
there were two more confrontations that they talk about that, that Peter had that showed the triumph of Christ over Satan. And they're both really interesting, but I just want to share the last one that happened. Simon was losing followers, and he was really upset. And so he was doing a number of different kind of miracles. But any time that, that um, Peter would come, he would mess up the miracles of this guy. And so finally, he wanted to have a final showdown. He told his disciples to dig a grave. He got into the grave, and he told them to bury him. And three days later, he would rise. And that was the last they ever saw of Simon. <laughs> And uh, so, to me, that's such a cool ending because only Jesus has power over death. Amen? Amen. <laughs> okay, let's go on next to the contrast in professions of faith. It was not just power that was a counterfeit. His faith was a counterfeit as well. And because some people don't recognize that there even can be such a thing as counterfeit faith, Many people have stumbled over verse 13. They're wondering, what in the world is going on here? Um, uh, Luke makes it very clear that Simon believes. Okay? He believes. Uh, and so they conclude, Simon lost his salvation. If he believed, he must have been saved and he must have lost his salvation. Or some other people equally conclude that true believers can be just as bound by Satan as Simon was. And I think it's a, a, a mistaken exegesis. But look, look at verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, the question I want to ask is, what kind of faith was this? Was it a live faith, a saving faith, or was it a dead faith? James chapter 2 talks about people who do believe. They believe in Jesus. They believe in God. And yet, their faith is a dead faith that does not save them. He also mentions that demons believe in God. In fact, their faith is so strong, they're trembling in their belief of God. And yet, uh, it is not a saving faith. I want you to turn with me to just a few passages. Turn, first of all, to John chapter 2. And I, I want to give some scriptures that show that, that people can believe in Jesus and yet not believe savingly. I think it's very important to understand that there are distinctions uh, in faith. These people are absolutely convinced that Jesus is indeed uh, the Messiah. John chapter 2 and beginning at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. The word believed there is pistuo. They believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. That's the same word, pistuo. They believed in Him. He didn't believe in them. Okay, He didn't pistuo in them because, here's the reason, He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. Now, Philip, he's preaching. People are responding. He can't read their hearts, so the only thing that he can do is take their testimonies of faith at face value. That's the only thing that we as elders can do. And so, it almost assures that in this church at some point in its history, there will be people that we have admitted on testimony of faith and they've professed faith, but Jesus does not believe in them because He knows what is in their heart. We can only look at the outward, but Jesus looks on the inward. There will always be tares among the wheat. A tear is a kind of thing that looks just like wheat, but it's not wheat. Uh, it is a, a counterfeit. Turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 and verse 13. This is Christ's um, explanation of the 
uh, the parable of the sower, various types of people, various responses to the Word of God that is sown. And I want you to look at verse 13. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the Word with joy. And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation they fall away. Notice that phrase, who believe for a while. They did have a kind of faith, but it was not a saving faith. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. In other words, John is saying, if people do not persevere, like these people failed to persevere, they may have had professions of faith, but he says they were never saved in the first place. It's not that they lost their salvation. People can abandon Christ. It's not that they lost their salvation. They didn't have it in the first place. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, this is Christ speaking uh, here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They had profession of faith, but it was a kind of faith that did not produce work. There was no genuine fruit, and it was not a saving faith. I want you to notice in verse 23, he did not say, I knew you once, you were saved back then, but now that you've lost your salvation, I don't know you anymore. He says, I never knew you. You never had salvation. You were never one of mine. And so they were fakes, they were counterfeits who were within the church of Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink in his book, uh, Studies on Saving Faith, wrote, It is impossible to say how far a non-saving faith may go and how very closely it may resemble that faith which is saving. Saving faith has Christ for its object, but so has non-saving faith. John 2, 23 and 24. Saving faith is wrought by the Holy Spirit but so also is non-saving faith, Hebrews 6.4. Saving faith is produced by the Word of God, but so also is non-saving faith, Matthew 13.20 and 21. Saving faith will make a man prepare for the coming of the Lord, so also will a non-saving faith. Of both the foolish and the wise virgins, it is written, then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, Matthew 25, verse 7. Saving faith is accompanied with joy, so also is non-saving Matthew 13, verse 20. Perhaps some readers are ready to say, all of this is very unsettling, and if really heeded, most distressing. May God in His mercy grant that this article may have these very effects on many who read it. Oh, if you value your soul, dismiss it not lightly. And I would say, Amen. This is one of the reasons why Paul said in Corinthians, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. There are many who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in the church and they do not have the life of God within them. They do not have the life of God. Now certainly they believe that Jesus died, He was buried, He was raised, He's sitting at the right hand of God, but that is an intellectual ascent that has had no impact upon their life in making them lean upon the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> It has no more impact than a belief that George Washington crossed the Delaware did. 
It's a historical belief. They may pray to Him for their finances when things go bad. Maybe I'll even illustrate this here. You know, they're praying to the Lord. Lord, we're in desperate straits. We need help with our finances. And so they, they trust God with their finances. And yet they're not leaning on the Lord. Or maybe they devote their house and their car to Him and say, Lord, there's so many bad things that are happening. Please protect us when we're driving and please protect our home. And yet 98% of the time, they're, when they're using that car and when they're using their house, they're not, they're not using it for the Lord's glory. They're not stewards of it. And certainly, they're not trusting the Lord during those good times. See, there is a big difference between trusting the Lord for some things that are in your life and casting some upon the Lord and actually putting your whole life upon the Lord and saying, Lord, I am yours. I want to follow after you. You know, on keys, there are different keys that look very, very similar, but uh, only one of them will open the right door. And in the same way, there are a lot of counterfeits of saving faith. And we need to be very careful and understand, do we have a living faith, a dynamic faith that has uh, united ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ? In Mark chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said that it is impossible for men to savingly believe on their own. Impossible. Praise God, though. He went on to say, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And I think we can test what kind of faith faith that we have by the fruit that that faith produces. Passages we read from Matthew 7 and James indicate that saving faith always produces good works. Now, there is a world of difference between Um, the works of faith and religionist works. Religionist works, they do good works to try to earn God's favor. Whereas faith works in a totally different way. Faith works out of a sense of favor already given, out of a sense that it's God who has provided everything and we are serving Him out of that uh, gratitude. True faith is willing to be tested by trials, whereas non-saving faith, it withers under trials. It falls away. Saving faith continues to grow in its victory under sin or against sin. Whereas non-saving faith is quite satisfied to just remain the same. Saving faith drives us into ever deeper relationship with the Lord God. Whereas non-saving faith is quite content if it thinks it's avoided judgment. If it thinks it's avoided uh, God's wrath. Um, Saving faith is able to find joy in adversity, whereas non-saving faith is destroyed or at least withers under adversity. True saving faith is far more concerned about the giver than it is the gift, whereas non-saving faith many times ignores the giver and is wrapped up with the gift. True saving faith is ever more humble with a sense of our utter unworthiness whereas non-saving faith is many times proud and satisfied. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the contrast between the faith of these, uh, these multitudes that were being saved and the faith of Simon. And before I do that, let me just give you the Reformation's definition of what true saving faith has. They said, all of the Reformers held to this. They said, true saving faith has three dimensions. First of all, it has notitia, which is a Latin word That means uh, knowledge, a belief of certain facts that uh, are out there. It has notitia. Second, it has a census, which is a wholehearted assent to or an agreement with the Word of God, an endorsement of the Word. 
Thirdly, it has fiducia, which is a trust and a willingness to follow that word. The multitudes had all three dimensions, and let's take a look at them. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women uh, were baptized. Uh, They had facts which they believed to be facts. Well, if they didn't believe them, they wouldn't have considered them to be facts. But they had certain things that they believed to be true, to be accurate. And I want you to notice that Simon had notitia as well. Verse 13 says, Then Simon himself also believed. Okay, that word also indicates that he had the same thing that was being described there uh, in verse 12. He had notitia. He believed some fact. I don't think we can question that. A second component of saving faith that the crowds had was a census. In other words, there was an agreement with the facts. There was an endorsement of the facts. Now, you might be wondering, okay, well, what is the difference between notitia and a census then? It seems like they're very similar, but let me describe it this way. You could believe certain facts and yet not assent to them. In fact, fight against them. Hate those facts. The demons have notitia. They believe God, but they certainly do not assent to God. They don't joyfully receive God. Uh, They don't uh, 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 agree with the fact that God is doing the things that He's doing. They know certain things, but they do not endorse them. They do not assent to them. So there is a difference between the two. Verse 14 says that the multitudes received the Word of God. They welcomed it. Okay, they agreed with it. They endorsed it. And baptism was the outward sign of their assent. Okay, it was the sign of their endorsement. And so verse 12 describes not only notitia, the, the believing of facts, but the endorsement of those facts. And even, you know, they received the Word and then they said, we're going to get baptized. This is a public pledge and sign that we are committed to of these things. But I want you to notice in verse 13, Simon was baptized as well. And for at least a period of time, he continued with Philip. Outwardly, at least, he was uh, endorsing these facts. When he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And so Simon has a census. The third element of saving faith that we see in the crowds is fiducia. Fiducia is a trust. It's a willingness to follow. Verse 6 says, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken. The word for to heed is a very strong word. It means to devote yourself to, to be completely committed to, and so it speaks of a trust. And there was a contrast in what they trusted before their conversion and what they trusted after their conversion. If you take a look at verse 10, you'll see what they trusted before their conversion. It was a person. (coughs) It says, uh, to whom they all gave heed. Okay, It says they they heeded Him. Um, And then if you take a look at um, verse 11... And they heeded Him because He had astonished them with His sorceries for a long time. Uh, Their trust was in a person, but now their trust is not in Philip. It's not in Peter. It is a trust in the Word of God. They heeded the things spoken, it says. Simon was not that way. In verse 18, we see that he puts far too much trust in what he thinks his money can buy. In verse 19, we see a trust in his power. In verse 24... 
he puts a temporary trust in Peter to keep harm away from him. Now, he could have, instead of going to Peter, he could have gone directly to the Lord and say, Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me. Lord, please, I repent and go to the Lord in faith. But he does not do that. He, he, he's looking. What is the most tangible expression of power that I see around here? It's Peter. Now, Peter knows he has no power in, a, in and of himself. But this shows that the so-called prayer of repentance in verse 24 is not even a prayer to God. It lacks faith altogether. He's trusting Peter to pray for him and to bail him out. And what makes Simon's profession of faith so good of a counterfeit, so much of a super note, is that it has the first two elements of saving faith, notitia and ascensus, but it does not have fiducia. A second indication that Simon's conversion was Martin, what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls a psychological conversion, not really a genuine or a spiritual conversion, is Peter's curse in verse 20. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Now the grammar shows that he is cursing both Peter and the money to destruction. And so the question is, what kind of destruction is being called for here? Some interpret this, that Peter is simply saying that, that Simon is being condemned to physical death, but his soul is really saved. And others say, no, he is being consigned to hell, to everlasting perishing. In fact, there are a couple of versions that take it that way. Uh, one has, may you and your money be sent to hell. One has, to hell with you and your money. Kind of an irreverent translation. I'm not sure I like that, but they're trying to capture the idea this word really is a very strong uh, word. Uh, the UBS dictionary defines this word as utter ruin or hell. Utter ruin or hell. Either definition seems to go way beyond simply loving discipline from the hand of a father. Utter ruin or hell. So it's, it's not solid proof that Simon was not saved, but it's strong enough to have convinced me if Peter was consigned to physical death, that's the one interpretation, utter ruin physically instead of spiritually, you would have expect he would have died just like Ananias and Sapphira did. But church fathers say he continued to live for years. He, he started a cult that did all kinds of damage to the church. <clears throat> now this conclusion is strengthened by the next verse, verse 21, which says, You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, there's debate on that one as well. What is the matter that he has neither part nor portion in? Some people say, well, the immediate context is the Holy Spirit. He didn't receive <coughs> the uh, Holy Spirit yet. Neither had the others, and he didn't condemn them. Uh, I, I just don't see that that as being a strong argument. Now, we're going to be seeing in a moment why it was that baptism of the Holy Spirit was delayed for the other believers but uh, there is something more that condemns Simon to utter destruction and is explained by the fact that his heart is not right with God. Peter is giving the reason for why he is condemned and the others are not. Okay, it's not because he has the same condition that the other believers have, that he doesn't have the Spirit. That, that just doesn't make any sense. Instead, I believe that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter could see into his heart and he could see that this person had no part in salvation, that he was not uh, saved like the rest of the believers were. Now, these reasons may not convince others. Again, they're, they're quite convincing to me. The third line of reasoning I would use 
to show that Simon was not saved is that he did not show the fruits of salvation. He did not show the fruits of faith or repentance. Uh, his continued search for power in verses 18 through 19 shows that his heart has not been realigned from power to grace. And there are many in Christianity today who do not recognize that their preoccupation with miracles is not a preoccupation with God. It's a preoccupation with selfishness. Verse 21 says, Your heart is not right in the sight of God. And yet Scripture indicates that a broken and a contrite heart, which he would have had if he's truly converted, a broken and a contrite heart, you will not despise, O God. And so uh, I would say that his heart, if it was a converted heart, would be right with God, not perfect, but cleansed, right, realigned to God. Third, verse 22 implies that he had no evangelical repentance. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Now, I'm not saying that believers don't need to repent and don't need to repent repeatedly. They do, but First John makes it very clear that when believers repent, their forgiveness is guaranteed. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no perhaps about it. Scripture assures us that believers will indeed persevere until the end. Now, in contrast, Peter is here saying, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven, or as some translated, if possible. And so, this implies he was not in a state of grace. And so, repentance and forgiveness are not a foregone conclusion. Verse 23 is further evidence that his heart has not been washed with the water of regeneration. Peter says, For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Now, Christians can be defiled by bitterness too. They can be uh, caught again by the snare of the devil, but this seems to be the whole person, Simon, who is poisoned and who is bound. It seems to go a little bit beyond uh, a regenerate state. Six, the supposed repentance of Simon in verse 24 does not even remotely resemble repentance. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. I hear these kind of prayers all the time by people who want to avoid the consequences of sin, but they have no interest in leaving the sin. They have no interest in forsaking the thing that has brought these consequences into their lives. Their concern is not with the horribleness of sin or with the, the, the awfulness of the poison. Uh, no, their concern is, how can I get rid of hell? How can I get rid of uh, punishment, God's wrath, the consequences of sin? Nobody wants to go to hell. And so the fact that a person doesn't want to go to hell is no indication whatsoever that he is a genuinely born-again person. What is an indication that the heart has been changed? Is that the heart has been realigned to see the desperate wickedness of our sin and to desire the glory of God and to be grieving over the fact our sin is fighting against God's glory. Now, they're not perfect, but they are hungering and thirsting after righteousness is what Jesus says. Not just hating a sin in general, but hating the specific sins that the Spirit brings to their consciousness. And so we need to evaluate ourselves. Is this the character of my heart? Where is my heart at? Well, the main points I'm making in verse 24 is that it isn't a prayer made to God. It's made to Peter. Secondly, it isn't a prayer of repentance. It's simply seeking to avoid a curse. 
The seventh fruit that I would judge is his continued preoccupation with power. And I won't go into that. I think I've talked about it enough. But for all of these reasons, I see a major contrast of professions of faith. And it's no wonder to me that the church fathers said after this encounter in Acts, Simon hated Peter and did everything he could to undermine the apostolic ministry. Luke does not contain that information because I think it's irrelevant to his purpose of making these contrasts of professions. He's not looking at the end result. But let me ask you this. Which profession of faith does your profession of faith look like? Paul said, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's very important we not deceive our own hearts with our own clever counterfeits. We need to desire the real thing. The last contrast that I want to highlight is a contrast in possessions. Now, both of these um, kinds of Christians did have some spiritual uh, possessions. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 5 speaks of people who were unsaved, who were going to hell, and yet it says they were in the church and it says they were once enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've experienced miracles. They've experienced Holy Communion. And they have enjoyed hearing the Word. And yet, he says, they're not even believers. They're clever, clever counterfeits. And so, let's look at the contrast of possessions. Both true believers and Simon possessed the Word of God, but the possession transformed the believers. It did nothing in the life of Simon. The Word of God is a very precious treasure. Not all people treasure the Word of God as they should. And I think to treasure the Word of God, it means that we are going to believe it, receive it, and heed it. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Do you simply possess the Word or do you treasure God's Word? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says that newborn, just as newborn babes always hunger for the mother's milk, newborn spiritual babes hunger for the Word of God. And so my question to you is this. It's not enough to say, I have the treasure of the Word. Do you treasure it? Do you value it? Do you hunger for the Word of God? These ones heeded it. They were devoted to it. Secondly, they both possessed water baptism. And I think that the word only in verse 16 is a a very significant word. It says, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, he's not um, minimizing the importance of baptism. Baptism is a precious treasure that we should value, but false false believers can possess baptism as well. It takes uh, far more than baptism to distinguish a Simon from a true believer. A larger catechism really hits on this and says, uh, what are you doing with your possession in effect, with your possession of baptism. Larger Catechism 165 says, Baptism not only admits to the church, but into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Are we living out our baptism? Larger Catechism 167 says, The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation, and when we are present at the administration of it to others. And then he goes on to explain, how do you improve your baptism? Here's how. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, 
and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements. By growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other, all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament. By drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening grace. And by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ. And to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into the body. Now, that's a huge mouthful. But the bottom line is, have you improved your baptism? If you have not, it is a possession that will actually end up becoming your curse. But now come some indications of where the differences really begin to come out between the two kinds of Christians. The saints get baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I think that the fact that Simon was watching this happen may imply he was not so baptized. Look at verses 15 through 16 who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet He had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now contrast that with verse 20. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. The gift of, of the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift that we could receive because He is the one who applies redemption in our lives. He is the one who strengthens us in, in our, uh, our, our day-by-day life. Now, this has been a, a passage that's confused many people because they say, now, wait a shake. It says they believed, but they hadn't received the Spirit. What's going on here? In Acts chapter 2, it says, from that time on, when people believe at that moment, they received the Holy Spirit. And so they say, maybe <clears throat> is this a paradigm that people believe and then sometime later in their life they get baptized? Uh, is, is it a paradigm that only apostles and officers can confer the Holy Spirit? What's going on here? And I agree with most commentators when they say that this is not God's normal pattern. Instead, God was done, doing something unusual in order to enable the Samaritans to be included in the church. When you understand the huge disparity, not disparity, the huge antipathy that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, these Samaritans would not have been accepted into the church unless the apostles said so, unless, uh, you know, God Himself gave a sign that they were to be accepted into the church. And so I think something new, unusual, had to happen. We've already seen that the Lord ordained that the church would be built on the foundation of the Apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, whom they bound would be bound, whom they admitted would be admitted. And the only way they could be admitted, again, is if the apostles admitted them, if there was prophetic confirmation, and if Jesus, the chief cornerstone, gave some sign that He was admitting them as well. And so the apostle John and Peter come, they're a double witness. Jesus shows that He's accepted them by sending forth something spectacular here, something very visible. Verse 18 says, Simon saw that the Spirit was given. And so I think it was something similar to Pentecost. There are four times when this happens. In Acts chapter 2, at the formation of the new Israel. At Acts chapter 8, at Samaria. That's where it's half Gentile, half Jew. Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius the Roman. So this is the Gentiles being included. 
And then Acts chapter 19 with the Old Testament saints who were disciples through John's baptism, but them being admitted. But other than those four groups who needed special approval, the pattern in Acts, the pattern throughout the New Testament is the moment people believe, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, can God give it later if He wants to? He can do anything He wants to do. All I'm saying is the general pattern is that it's at the moment of conversion. The fourth and fifth things that they possessed were liberty and joy. Verses 7 through 8. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed and there was great joy in that city. Uh, Now contrast that liberty and joy with the bondage, the bitterness, and the fear of Simon in verse 23. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. And so it's no wonder to me that Peter says um, that... uh, that he had no part, you have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Membership in the church does not guarantee that you're going to have joy, liberty from the Holy Spirit, that you're going to have power. Only God can grant that, and so constantly we need to be looking to God through Jesus Christ for those living waters, those refreshing waters. So what you possess is important. More importantly than that, though, is what you are doing with your possessions. That is an indicator of God's presence. Now, nothing more is said about Simon in this book because I think God's focus is on the real thing, not on the counterfeit. It's just like bankers. They're not taught to detect counterfeits by looking at lots of counterfeits. They're taught to to detect counterfeits by looking at lots of the real thing. When they see the counterfeit, they will recognize it. And so, the Apostles' ministry is on the positive and the account abruptly ends with their ministry to Samaritans beyond the Jews. Verse 25, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And I just want to just quickly end by encouraging you, when you begin to wonder, am I truly saved? Um, And to begin to doubt your salvation to not just focus on all of the negative issues that could indicate that you were not saved. Focus on Christ. Focus on service to Him. And more and more, your assurance will begin to grow. One of the big mistakes I made in my younger years when I doubted my salvation over and over again was to uh, think back and analyze, psychoanalyze my repentance and my faith. Did I really believe back then? Did I really have faith back then? And in effect, what Satan was subtly doing is he was taking my eyes off of Christ and putting them onto myself. He was making me have faith in my faith instead of faith in Christ. And what one wise person told to me is he said, it doesn't matter whether you really believe back then. Do you really believe right now? Because faith is an ongoing thing. It's constantly looking to Christ for our security. Justification is not a once-only thing. We're every day of our lives benefiting from justification and saying, Lord, I trust You and You alone for my salvation. You are my security. You are my power. You are my joy. Everything flows from Christ. And so my admonition to you is to fix your eyes on Jesus who is the author and the finisher of your faith. But if you have been discouraged by this sermon, do analyze, am I fixing my eyes on Christ? And am I really deriving strength from Christ? Do I have a vital faith 
Or do I have a faith that is simply fixed on something that's happened in the past and that's all I need to worry about? That may be an indicator. You have a non-saving faith. If your eyes are on the past, on yourself, on the accomplishments that you have made rather than simply looking upon the Lord Jesus Christ and being empowered by Him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that You would enable us to truly fix our eyes on Christ who is the author and the finisher of our faith. There are so many subtle ways in which we are tempted into counterfeit religion that I pray that our preaching would be Christ only and the cross of Jesus Christ and that uh, we would have all things in life flowing through that focus. And Father, if there are some here who are not regenerate in heart, who have not had uh, a true faith stirred up within them, I pray that these Scriptures would burn within their souls until they find their only solution in You and the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that there would be none uh, from the youngest to the oldest who would leave this room without uh, uh, making sure that they have tested their faith, that they have examined themselves to see whether they are in the faith. And Father, I pray that there would be great joy as people find their security in You and their power in You. We pray this in Christ's name.